Welcome to this week's Eccentric Minute, brought to you by Eccentric. This week's Eccentric Minute is one of my favorite exercises to do with the K-Poly, and that is the pull-through. Guys, once you've figured out about how far you need to walk out with the K-Poly, grab whatever attachment you're using for the pulley, walk yourself out there, and really push your hips back at the K-Poly. From there, when you hit that stretch, really punch your hips forward, keep your chest up, and try to extend your knees and your hips all the way through. And this is where one of the major benefits of using a flywheel kicks in, as it pulls you into a deeper stretch as you push your hips back in, into your hamstrings and your hip extensors, so that you really open it up and stretch everything out in the back. This is an exercise that I'm sure your athletes are going to love to hate, but reap awesome rewards from. I really hope you enjoyed this week's Eccentric Minute. Make sure you check them out at eccentric.com to find out everything you need about the K-Box and the K-Pulley. Being a strength and conditioning professional requires constant pursuit of better knowledge, better methods, and better means. But what if there was a place where strength and conditioning coaches could learn from some of the most innovative practitioners in the world, such as Jeff Moyer, Lachlan Wilmot, William Wayland, James the Thinker Smith, and Kirwenham Flat? Well, you could find multiple lectures from each of these top-level coaches and a few lectures and examples from yours truly as well all in the Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is going to bring you well over a hundred different lectures from some of the top practitioners in the world to be your one-stop shop for your continuing education and professional development. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. That's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash cbasps to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I have the absolute pleasure of getting to sit down and discuss the physical preparation of tennis athletes with Chris Borthwick. After a real quick rundown of how Chris got down to Winston-Salem, he is going to dive right into kind of his unique perspective of developing energy systems with these athletes, including a really awesome overview of his programming how he progresses as athletes, and how it all fits together with the court work that they're doing with the sport coaches um, throughout the yearly cycle. Chris then shares with us, you know, the idea of gears and how he teaches the athletes what these gears are and how this impacts him to be able to better prepare them and to improve the outputs both above and below what the game actually demands. Next, he discusses with us, you know, Ways he's monitored with these athletes and, and how it's helped his program better and really how it's helped communicate how practice is impacting the athletes at a higher level. And we finish off talking about the role of nonverbal communication and how that really can increase buy-in and even gives a sensational example of just how using your hands a little different might help tennis players understand what you're talking about a little more. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Chris, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Listen, I'm fired up about this. This is, uh, again, we've now kind of run into some areas where we're getting a little bit more more niche with some of these talks. And being able to talk with a guy who's worked in high-level tennis here in the States fires me up because I've, I've had the pleasure of uh, getting to work with, with some tennis athletes myself. But before we get into the nitty-gritty, you know, let's let everybody out there know, you know, who you are, where you're at, and how you got there. You want me to go all the way back? 
I mean, might as well. It's going to lead us all the way to where we need to get. For sure. So, yeah, I grew up I grew up playing tennis and rugby, funnily enough. Um, contact sports, so I, I really enjoyed that. But tennis was kind of my second, second love, so to speak. Um, I went away to university uh, back in the UK, and I actually stopped playing tennis um, when I was there, but trained tennis athletes. Um, the big thing as well, my, my sister's a big tennis player. She played pro for a little bit. She played, she was a four-year starter at Florida State. Um, so that kind of got us involved and kind of linked me up with Florida State a little bit down the line, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. But yeah, I went to, went to university not really knowing too much what to expect. I knew I wanted to do something within sports. I did the standard thing of studying sport and exercise science. Two years into that program, um, there was an opportunity. Uh, I just saw like out of the blue, just this kind of poster on the wall, like strength conditioning internship. I was like, oh, that's how I enjoyed going to the gym and, and lifting weights and things like that. That seems pretty interesting. So I, uh, I applied for that uh, and actually got, I got that position. Um, and then I spent two years going through my final year. It's a three-year program over there and plus a one-year master's I did. Um, so I spent two years interning under my mentor there, Joel Brannigan, uh, who I owe, owe a lot to and kind of kept everyone, kept everyone grounded and things like that and made you definitely work hard. Um, but during that time, one of, the, one of the big things I did was actually connected with some of the coaches at Florida State University, uh, Coach John Jost. Um, and I spent time, I spent the summer there, 2000, the summer of 2012, I believe it was, um, working with the Olympic sports there. So I worked with just a variety of different, I literally just got thrown in the deep end, kind of work here, there and everywhere. Um, so I did that for the summer, came back, completed another year, well, that year, first year of my internship. Um, and then went on to finish my kind of, it was actually a paid internship there as well, which is quite, quite rare back then. And so I was very lucky to have that position. Um, finished my master's degree, got a job straight out of school uh, as the head of strength conditioning at a private independent school in the UK called Radley College. So I ran that program for two years, and that was more of a like participation element to it as well as performance. So you got to work a lot within the health and wellness of the student body and the kind of performance aspect. We have quite a lot of, uh, or we had quite a lot of rowers uh, there as well, one or two GB athletes, which was which was quite cool and getting that experience working with those two different populations, which was, which was great. Um, during that time, I actually headed back to Florida State University, um, used those kind of contacts I'd made there and um, worked for the summer with the football team. So that would be the summer of 2015, I believe it was. And I uh, worked under Coach Vic Valoria. hope I haven't butchered his, butchered his name there. Um, so I worked with him for the summer with the football team, which was another great experience, kind of opened my eyes to what kind of American football, as his Brits call it, my, as to what that was. Um, after that, I obviously went back to the UK, finished my final year at Radley College, and I thought if I was going to take the jump to try and get to the US, that I had to do something and put myself out of my comfort zone. I already had another job lined up. Um, I had a job offer to go and work at another school, um, but I decided to kind of not do that. And I did what a lot of uh, a lot of young kind of interns and young coaches do and just send an email to every every school I sent I think about 150 emails most D1 schools were covered there and I, I got probably three responses the so Wisconsin Stanford and Northwestern State over in Louisiana so I actually ended up packing my bags um, on the drop of a hat and, and flying over to Louisiana Natchitoches Louisiana um, to work with uh, coach Chadwick down there he was heading up the football program at the time I went as a graduate assistant and I studied uh, sports management. So I went back into school after being out for, for a few years. And I went in just to, and that was my way of getting my kind of student visa. 
getting getting into the American system. During that time when I was there, the assistant coach here at, at Wake actually contacted me and said, oh, would you like to come across and like do a little bit of like, kind of consulting to an extent with our tennis team, just, just see what's going on. Um, he's an English guy, so I, I knew him, and that was the kind of connection there, luckily. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure, sounds like, sounds like fun. Headed across for the week, uh, had a great time, met the guys and stuff like that, and then headed back to Northwestern State. Didn't really think too much of it at the time. Um, and I actually ended up, I was only in, in Louisiana for about eight months. I, I got a job offer to actually go back to the UK. And at this point in Louisiana, I was actually sleeping on the floor. Um, I had my had my duvet or my comforter, and I was just wrapping myself up in that every night and just sleeping on the floor because I couldn't really afford to buy anything. Um, so at this point, when I got offered a full-time job back in the UK, I'm like, ah, okay. I, I had to take it. <laughs> Needed some money in the pocket. So I headed back to the UK. And then after being there for about a year, um, Wake Wake Forest contacted me and said, "Look, we think you've got we've got a position for you. Are you interested?" Um, depending on the visa, I was like, "Yes, yeah, like sure, like sounds great." Um, couldn't really turn that down, and I didn't really think it would come through with the visa and things like that being so difficult to get. Um, so I was kind of a little bit settled in Bath, and eventually, I think it was nine months later after they initially offered me the job, the visa came through. I was like, "Wow!" So like, okay, we need you here like tomorrow. Like, oh. So I ended up, I managed to get a week. So I, I was out there within a week. Got to go over there as quick as possible. And then, yeah, the, the rest is history. So now the assistant director of sports performance at Wake Forest University and primarily responsible for the, uh, the men's and women's tennis programs. And that's kind of my journey around the globe. <laughs> yeah, dude, those visas can be tricky. Yeah, for sure. It was, everyone was a little bit stressed during that period. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. But now, you know, getting us back to where we are right now with what you're doing with the tennis programs down there in Winston-Salem. You've kind of, you know, you went back to school. You've been a guy that's been trying to learn and advance the entire time. You've been bouncing in and out of weight rooms. and Now you've got a new little area that you're diving into a little deeper. Yeah, for sure. So I've been now in this position for, for two years. Um, and we've, we've kind of, obviously, we're trying to get the basics in place because the basics and fundamentals are, are what can make the difference at the end of the day. But one of my passions, so to speak, is within energy system development. And that's something we've, and obviously, like, tennis has some pretty pretty crazy demands when it comes to it. You play a lot of matches throughout the year. I mean, average on the pro circuit, you're looking around, players are playing around 45 matches. Some guys are playing, I know I presented at a, a conference recently, and Medvedev, who's one of the kind of up-and-coming stars, now a top-10 player, he played up to September 30th. He'd already played 71 matches since January 3rd, which is crazy. Now, bearing in mind, most of these are best, best of three-set matches. You're probably looking around three, three-and-a-half hours on court, um, and that's without your grand slams, which are, which are five-set matches. So you've got to be in physically like, pretty phenomenal shape to be able to do that for such a prolonged period of time over the year. And bearing in mind as well, you only get such a short off-season. Your off-season is finishing, or starting, sorry, around the middle of November. So you're getting around six weeks before the Brisbane International uh, starts in January, January 3rd, which is where a lot of the pros will kick off their season before they go to the Aussie Open. Um, so they're doing a lot of hot weather camps now before they head over there. So you're not getting a huge amount of time uh, to prepare these guys for the physical demands of, of what's happening. So my interest kind of came into into kind of the, the energy system development, if you like, within tennis athletes. 
And I think typically when I speak to a lot of coaches and I speak to one or two guys at different federations, their approach is, okay, so it's a repeat sprint ability sport. We're going we're gonna to throw repeat sprint kind of movements and things like that at them. These kind of work to rest ratios, typically anywhere between like one to five or two to five or whatever it's going to be. Um, and that's what you get. You get a lot of repeat sprint work. And I've rightly or wrongly taken a different approach. And I've said, okay, so they're already getting this approach or this, these elements and demands on the court. That bucket, as far as I'm concerned, is, is tapped out. That is full. I've done repeat sprint work with athletes, with tennis guys before, and they just don't really get tired from it. And it doesn't really, I don't think they get too many more benefits from it because they're already getting that for three hours a day, maybe more on court. So I take, I take the approach of working above and below the demands of the game see what the actual demands are from, from tennis, and we work an elastic aerobic approach, and we kind of funnel it, funnel it from there. And I, I took a bit of this idea from, from Kia, and um, I, know, I know you've got a good relationship there with Kia, but obviously he's a fellow Brit, so I spoke to him a little bit and kind of taken a bit of this idea. But taking that elastic aerobic approach, we can work above and below the demands of the game, and works from the elastic side, some of those high-energy outputs or high outputs that t- tennis players don't typically get on the court so we look at a lot of different movement patterns within tennis we look at kind of uneven split step crossover step cut step your usual kind of movement patterns but then we say okay even from a 10 yard sprint perspective we try i test a 10 yard sprint or i try to um once a week or once every two weeks just so we can monitor that throughout the year and see if we're actually making any any significant differences and just getting the guys to understand what their highest output is is huge because you get a guy, you get a tennis player, for example, to do a tempo run and they think they're sprinting, which is madness. So we've got to get them to understand their gears. And then as a result of that, we can kind of, we can look more towards the sustainability aspect on the aerobic side. And I want them again to, to understand their gears and how, can, how they can kind of push through these gears or pull back through these gears, which is where we use a little bit of our tempo runs and things like that on the, on the lower end. So our, our higher end, staying with the elastic work, we're looking obviously early on build that build that ability kind of train the central nervous system to move fast whether it's through moving weights fast jumping throwing medicine rolls sprinting cutting that type of stuff and then slowly but surely expand that envelope through alactic power into alactic capacity um we'll tap on that for two weeks typically this year i run an eight week model eight week block and we went two weeks alactic power two weeks alactic capacity then we actually moved into a little bit of lactic power and then lactic capacity finally just for two weeks. I just wanted to to touch on that lactic ability, um, especially the capacity stuff, just for two weeks, just because it is very kind of taxing on the body for them. And I want them to know it's a place that they've been. And to be honest, it's more of an insurance policy if they're going to be doing whatever it's going to be on the court. And all of a sudden, maybe they go a 40-ball rally. Then all of a sudden, they're ready to go that. And they, they know they've been there and they're confident with it. And I think one or two kind of coaches forget that if we look at how long an actual rally lasts within tennis the average rally length is four shots now obviously averages can be deceiving and surfaces change but in college you're looking around four shots so that's a serve return one two and the rally's over so that's more elastic than you actually think now obviously we've got to be able to be ready to go eight to 15 shots as well for a lot of for some of our points should i say and that's going to be underpinned by our aerobic development. So I want us to be able to uh, resynthesize the ATP and everything like that as quick as possible by having a well-developed aerobic system. 
So we've been pushing, we've went from kind of a, as the guys first get back from campus within the aerobic, we go from a, a one to four work to rest ratio and just slowly bring it down over time, just using from extensive to intensive, uh, general to specific, and just slowly bringing those rest periods down over time. And then within that as well, it's actually something I've kind of, I've got one or two online clients as well that I work with within swimming and I try to kind of use them as guinea pigs a little bit. Hopefully they're not listening to this. Um, but yeah, we, I use them as guinea pigs and we, I test out some kind of lactate tolerance work and lactate clearance work. So I'll do something like 12 seconds on. If we're looking to, to improve the lactate clearance within the shoulder, we'll go 12 seconds on 45 seconds off with an overhead plate press and then we'll drop it quickly and we'll go two seconds up, two seconds down with just a PVC, uh, a PVC pipe. And then we'll do things like lactate tolerance. will be 20 seconds on. Uh, 20 seconds kind of active rest and then 20 seconds rest as well we we mix that up between our um, sometimes we introduce that with some of our tempo work as well to make it a little bit more specific to tennis so we'll do a 20 second toward our, towards our more intensive end of the spectrum we'll do a 20 second tempo run um, followed by maybe some body weight squats and then we'll move into some rotational forehand and backhand movements um, just to make sure that we're actually clearing the lactate out of there as well um, and to be honest, I've had some very good results with that, especially within within the swimming population. Um, I've had guys and girls both hitting, um, or a few of them hitting PRs from using those specific methods as well. And that is something that we've started to adopt um, within tennis. Um, so those methods have definitely been uh, pretty useful in that as well. I love that entire process that you have put together and how we're looking at that individually now. But as we both know, when you're dealing with a tennis player, there is an exceptionally large amount of on-court work that they're doing at all times. How is that volume taken into account with this as it progresses? So as we come out of that initial eight-week block, typically a lot of our, our movements or whether it's conditioning, we, we implement into practice. And as we're in practice, then that's where I communicate with coach and say, okay, maybe it's this quality we need to work on this week. And within the skill element as well, and and we can we build it essentially into drills, and we try and make everything a little bit more um, more competitive as well. And, and to be honest, we make it more game specific because that's that's what we're there to do. We're there to make them kind of a master of their sport, or as Kia would put it, a, a PhD in their sport. And if I don't, if the things that I do in the weight room don't transfer to the court, then it it doesn't really matter. It's I'm not really sorry, I'm not really doing my job properly if they don't transfer to on the court. So when we look at Different movements on the uh, sorry in the on the turf and things like that. We're looking at crossover steps, running steps, wherever it's going to be. You've got to build this or build this into a progression where when they're on the court, they understand what what that kind of feels like in a in a controlled environment. Then all of a sudden, we can start putting them towards the end of the spectrum. Once I'm confident that they can put these different movement patterns and, and challenges together, we can do this under fatigue as well. And then doing it under fatigue is obviously that's when it's going to come more on the court. So I don't want to, unless they can hit certain movement patterns and things like this, and I'll throw different complexes at them, and they've got to be able to react to that and understand what they are and do it efficiently. Once they can do that, then we can start putting it under fatigue because otherwise it's just going to be it's just going to be a bit of a mess, if we're honest, if they can't do that. You take a freshman that's just came into the program, they can't hold a basic shape or crossover step or whatever it's going to be. If they can't hold that shape, they're never going to be able to do it under fatigue on the court as well, especially maybe two and a half hours into a, to a dual match or whatever it's going to be. I love that, dude. And now you touched upon something earlier that 
selfishly, I'd like us to run down that rabbit hole a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. You talked about teaching these young men and women what it feels like to get into these different gears. And I think that that's something, I mean, especially in the sport of basketball, where everything is basically done in that, you know, that like the, the one area of training where Charlie Fra- Francis said you should do nothing, that's the game yep. of basketball. And sure. it's, it's kind of the game of tennis. So how do you communicate this and build this and evolve these young people's mindset so that they understand that like their fast might not actually be fast and their slow actually probably isn't slow. Yeah. So that's, that's a big one. And that is something we've been, we've been working on. And that comes from, obviously I talked about understanding the gear. So there's kind of, this is a, like a two pronged approach. So within our energy system development stuff, I'll, I'll go back to that first. We look at a lot of things like sustainability. So when I'm emphasizing a lot of stuff to our guys, whether we do our off-feet conditioning or our tempos, I say to them, pick something that's going to be sustainable. Now, they look at me initially, and it's, they have no idea what I mean by that. So we say, okay, if you were to push, let's say we do some sort of something I do in my training myself, like an EMOM. First minute you go here, second minute you go here, you've got a certain amount of distance to cover. You could push as hard as you want on the Versa Climber, for example, the death machine. You can go as hard as you want for 20 seconds. Okay, and you're going to be pretty shot at. It's going to take you a little bit longer to recover. But we could do that in 45 seconds, and we're probably not going to bunk the heart rate up too much. So we look at that from a sustainability point of view. Now, I want you to sustain or keep your heart rate as consistent as possible over a 30-minute period. And that's something I've been working with uh, with one of our interns uh, specifically, trying to teach him to understand the gears. And we've, we've done that with our guys. Some of our conditioning, we've done some EMON-style uh, stuff from our, for our base-level training uh, and our GPP. We teach them to understand the gears. Now, the that's doing tempo runs as well. We talk a lot about RPEs, just from a 0 to 10 scale. How hard do you think you're pushing and, 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 and things like this? And how quickly can you recover? Because that sustainability and then recovery comes back to on the court and being able to control your mind as well. So if we're – and the way I sell this little bit to the guys on the court is, okay, so you've just had a 30-ball rally. You're pretty gassed coming off of that rally. You've now got 20 to 25 seconds to re- recover go to your towel, wipe the sweat off your forehead, wherever it's going to be, get it, you know, you don't have a chance, chance to get a drink. Think tactically about what's going to happen next. How can you kind of beat your opponent or how can you outmaneuver him, whatever it's going to be. Think technically about maybe what went wrong or what went right in the, in the last rally. And all of these things, you're trying to think and control your emotions at the same time because maybe you just lost a 30-ball rally. So as they come off and then maybe we're doing some intensive tempo, whatever it's going to be, they've came off the... Um, the kind of woodway treadmill, they're pretty fatigued. And now it's all of a sudden bringing their mind back down to, to be able to control themselves um, and get themselves back into this state where they can refocus and, and go again. And so one of the two of the things that we've been looking at there is, okay, between sets, not necessarily between reps, between sets we maybe put some sort of math puzzle on the whiteboard. And in groups of three, we've got to, we've got to answer that because we've still got to be able to concentrate and understand what's going on uh, as we go back, well, between points and then obviously between reps and sets as well. And it's just trying to get them to think along that line. Now, with the, I think gears has got something definitely to do with that as well. Obviously, the harder you push, the more you're going to fatigue and, and, and things like that. But going into the detail of a little bit more with the gears, we've done like five-second sprints on the woodway and just try to show them what their actual outputs are. And even when we sprint over 10 yards, like this is your maximal output. Okay, now, now we say, okay, let's take a percentage of this, this power output and let's just say, okay, so when I get you to run – 
tempo is maybe working at 60% or whatever it's going to be, we pull that down and we show them what that wattage is actually going to look like. And it's like, ah, okay. That's when it clicks a little bit. And to be honest, those, those treadmills have been, have been huge for us. We've done a lot of like tempo work and re restorative work on there as well. And the guys love it because it's a lot lower impact than what they do on the court. And I know you mentioned before, it's like the impacts between basketball and tennis can be pretty similar. You've got some reasonably similar movement patterns there. And for me, a lot of our conditioning is actually done um, off, like off feet and things like that. And I class the treadmill as off feet just because the impacts are a lot lower. Um, and that's something that we've, by doing that, we've managed to get them to understand this is the gears, this is sustainability. I want you to, I want this workout to be a seven out of 10 guys. Can you do that? And it's a lot of communication between the coach and the athlete. And I'm constantly asking them, okay, where do you feel you're at now between zero and 10? And we've explained that kind of RPE scale to them, that 10 being you're dying not far from the hospital and, and kind of explain it and expand it along that scale. And I think now it's, it's taken a bit of time. Definitely wasn't an overnight fix by any means, but now I think they understand that. And they, I can be like, okay, guys, you've got a restorative session here, no harder than like a five out of 10, for example. And I could give them a few exercises and they can just flow through that now as well. Get the heart rate up just a little bit and, and kind of recover, actively recover as well as get some good, good aerobic benefits from that. I dig that, man. Now, let me, let's back up just a little bit here. You talked a bit about RPE and you also mentioned heart rate. Are those things you're tracking and looking at together or are they independent upon each other? We've used heart rate. We've tracked heart rate on these um, when we do this type of stuff as well. And to be honest, it, as a lot of the research shows as well, it, it does just correlate quite nicely. Six out of 10 is probably around 60% and, and things like that. And I think from a time standpoint, getting the heart rate monitors out in the gym, and like, we, like I say, we have done it. We have done it on court. We use the heart rate monitors more on court to see what the demands of certain drills are from a coach's point of view. So the coaches know how hard each drill is because as I imagine a lot of the listeners know, the coaches often don't understand how hard the drill is themselves. So we'll go through, whether it's a, a four by four kind of protocol, so we're working four minutes on, maybe four minutes off for four sets or whatever it's going to be, we're trying to push quite hard there. But maybe it's identifying what movements on court are going to elicit that response. So we use a drill for that type of a, uh, heart rate response we're probably going to look at something like a two cross one line drill and the coach if i speak to a coach he knows exactly what that is i'm saying like, okay for our conditioning element today we maybe need to hit like a two cross one line for a few sets of four minutes and then straight away they start thinking and i think a lot of that comes down to the terminology and understanding the tennis movements as well um and just getting a little bit more involved in the sport now if i can see where an athlete, maybe I can take something that I've seen when I'm doing a one-on-one -on -one session with a guy and, and kind of say, okay, this is where we look, need to emphasize a little bit more from like the push from the, the back foot or inside edge of the foot to get over on a crossover step or whatever it's going to be. I think being around on the court definitely helps that as well. And that's kind of quite lucky with what I'm within my position working just with tennis. I can be on the court and over at the tennis facility a lot more than necessarily just maybe having to be in, spend a lot of my time in the weight room. No doubt, man, because understanding how to communicate and all those things just comes back to meeting everybody where they're at. For sure, for sure. And that's one big thing that I talk to the interns about and things like that. It's even little things about how you maybe, if you're talking to them and using their terminology, how you actually, I don't know if you can see on the camera here, but if I, how I use my hand as a tennis racket. So a lot of people will grip a tennis racket like this if they're like a strength coach. And whereas tennis players, if you look at them, they use their hand and try and finesse quite a lot. And that, that's something that's quite interesting. Not a lot of people understand that 
if I kind of use my hands a little bit more to show maybe a one-handed backhand or whatever it's going to be, straight away you've got a lot more engagement because they're like, oh, okay, this guy maybe knows what he's talking about instead of just being a meathead. Yeah, because this population is one that either loves or hates the weight room to the massive extreme. So in order to get them on, you've got to make sure that you can you can display even if it isn't with your hands it's what's important to them moving better and being able to swing better and that sort of thing yeah for sure and like we've got guys that like you say love the weight room we've got guys that hate the weight room and it's just it's getting that balance the guys that love the weight room will come in and get extras the guys that don't they just get the kind of minimum done and, and check that box for the week so to speak but i think it's my responsibility and this is something i've learned the last few years it's I've got to make that a real enjoyable environment for them to be in. It's not just necessarily come in, check the box. It, it's come in and make sure that they feel like they're enjoying it and getting something out of it. Now, sometimes certain players like to just feel like they've, if they just do a weight session, maybe they're not like fully sweated and feel fatigued at the end of the session. So maybe we throw a little bit of buys and tries in there. Maybe we actually give them a set of maybe some tempos or whatever it's going to be, just something on the treadmill or versa just to get them sweating a little bit now is it the ideal that you maybe want to give them like no probably not but does it make them feel great that they've had a really good session and they leave like feeling pumped about coming back to the gym next time then that for me that's more important and it's i, I used to always say that I'm, I'm not in the entertainment business but unfortunately it's it's kind of went almost went full circle and i feel like i'm entertaining at times a little bit more just to give the athlete even though they've checked my boxes of what i want I've still got to give them obviously what they want and then they can leave the weight room happy. So we've, we've got a good relationship and they, they come back wanting more. No doubt about it, Chris. So let me get you out of here on this brother. What do you see as next and where can people keep up with what y'all are doing down there in Winston-Salem? So next, you mean next coming up? Like what have I got coming up or? Yeah. And where do you see this developing and evolving in the future? Well, we're trying to, we're using a lot of the elite form, um, data and things like that. At the moment, we just we just collected, uh, and I'm trying to see. Okay, and like this year, more than anything, we've actually lifted our total tonnage. Lifted is a lot less as a result of the elite form, which is really interesting. So we're starting to crunch some numbers over break a little bit and and break that down. So that might be a conversation for another time. But I definitely think it's like like we said, tennis players don't necessarily love to to lift weights. As a result, we've done a lot of body weight stuff in terms of like long duration ISOs and things like that, and what by them kind of as using vbt as a method they've bought into that a lot more as well they love seeing a green screen flash up in front of them and and they see it as a competition and by having that i suppose working with the the youth that we kind of work with today and the kids that we work with they love that sort of competition and you can set up little leaderboards with that it's not necessarily a plug for for elite form but i've really enjoyed using that system and i think the kids have, have bought into that as well um so hopefully we, we start to use, utilize that a little bit more. That's that's relatively new to, to me as well. So that's I'm, I'm kind of learning as, as the kids are with that. Um, but hopefully like my long-term plan is is definitely to, to allow, well, to learn more about tennis myself and then help educate the coaches on that on that process of, okay, this is, our, this is what our athlete looks like. We still need to educate them because at the end of the day, like a lot of the guys that come through our program are looking to be professional players. Um, so they come in day one and, they're obviously a freshman. They're probably not physically developed. One or two of them are because they've been with their federation, um, which is a but that is a rarity. And then, but my job is I, I see it as it's I'm trying to create a pathway in an education program. 
Now, if these guys can't take a warmth from the, for themselves, then, then I haven't done my job properly because they're going to be going out on the professional tour. And they play a lot of pro matches within college as well, on, especially in the fall. Um, but if they can't leave the program, um, even at the end of year one, and go to these summer kind of pro tournaments and actually like take themselves for a warm-up and cool down and, and kind of fuel themselves correctly, then I haven't done my job. So I think first and foremost within all of this, it's an education program before you get into the sets and reps or anything like that. And it's, it's kind of making these, these guys understand that these are the, the boxes that you've got to tick. And if anyone, if anyone does want to reach out to me, uh, it's, I'm on Instagram most of the time. Um, that's probably where you can get me. Don't really do Twitter. So that's at Chris Borthwick, K-R-I-S-B-O-R-T-H-W-I-C-K. And then if you just go to the same email, or the same name, sorry, at iCloud.com, just drop me an email and I'll, uh, I'll get back to you. Love it, brother. Truly fascinating and fantastic stuff. Keep up the great work down there, man, and uh, truly appreciate all you're doing. No worries, Jay. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, man. Cheers. We'll be in touch real soon, brother. Thank you. Thank you. And a huge thanks to Chris Borthwick for spending the time with us today. Guys, just some open, honest, candid sharing. And a coach really laying it out there, giving some great examples that you can take and, and be better with your athletes. The idea of thinking about how you use your hands in conjunction with their sport to help communicate better really can transfer to all sorts of games, right? And he's right. We think grab with that fist, but, you know, tennis players are really loose and open with their hands when they use the racket. I think that's a sensational example. And then how we taught them gears. I think that's super important because I think more and more today – Kids think that they're working harder than they may be or they're the things that are easy, they're actually probably working harder than they need to be. So teaching them to understand that, I mean, that's, those two things right there are absolute gems. And I can't thank Chris enough for being so open, honest, and candid with us sharing today. Chris, keep up the great work down there, man. It's, it's, it's really appreciated. And as always, guys, if you did enjoy the talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we're just trying to get the best information out there to all the great coaches that we can. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.